0: Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you once again to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've been thinking about God a lot recently. I know that's sort of part of my job description, but sometimes it actually happens. I, was, um, I am uh, playing in a church softball league this spring. Um, it's, I'm not cheating on you, don't worry. There's, if this church had a team, I'd be on it. But I'm on the team of another church. I was uh, heavily recruited to be on this team because I fulfill a vital need for them, I have a great talent for for um, being a human a human being able to fill a spot that they need filled on the field um, so this is a Christian church league, which means um, that it 's christian e uh, we say a prayer before the game, we say a prayer after the game, we don't swear during the game. Those are sort of the three rules of Christian sports, right? You pray before, you pray after, and you don't swear during. This is very different, of course, from the town league that I played in last year, where there's um, no praying before, no praying after, and swearing aplenty during. Um, I, I like them both, actually. Um, but one of the interesting things that happened a couple of weeks ago at my uh, Christian-y softball league was that we, um, we all came together for the pre-game prayer. We're sort of circled around home plate. And the I think the minister of the church that we were playing against was going to lead the prayer. And he sort of said, you know, let's pray. And he said, um, dear God of grace... And then he looked up and he goes, hats off. And I just thought that was hilarious. You clearly do not think that's hilarious, but it is by definition hilarious because he had sort of said, God of grace. And then he looked up and said, you're not following the rules. When you pray, you take your hat off. God of grace, you'd think might forgive that but not to um, this particular prayer. It was an interesting... I almost laughed out loud when it happened. Um, Luckily, I didn't. And I I actually um, was telling this story to somebody this week, and they said, Did you take your hat off? I said, Of course I did. I'm a good Christian. (laughs) It's interesting to think about how we think of God, right? Is he a God of grace? Does he care... What we have on our heads while we talk to him? Or is he a God of rules? Does he not want to hear from us unless we're, you know, properly respectful? I was thinking about sort of the ways in which we think about God. And I was thinking about them specifically in terms of this week. You can see by all the red we're wearing, except for my stole, which is orange. I hope I'm wearing the right one. Um, Don't tell me about it if I'm not. I tried. But this is the Sunday of Pentecost. This is when we remember the Holy Spirit coming into the world. And so we talk about the Holy Spirit today. And I'm not just going to talk about the Holy Spirit because I don't want to inspire any sort of inter-Trinity jealousy. I want the Father and the Son to get there just due to. So we're going to do all three this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sort of a, a triple play. Um, for you guys this morning because the ways in which we think about God I think can be seen in these three persons of the Trinity the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit they each sort of are a good example of the ways in which we think about God the first way I think that a lot of us think about him are as God above us all right, he's sort of the creator of the world. He set everything up the way that it is, and he's in charge. For instance, he's the guy who says, when you talk to me, take off your hat. Right, no, no hats. That's God above us. He is the one who created the sunset, and the trees, and waterfalls, and all the beauty of the world that we live in. And... God above us is great. We we like the idea. The same um, prayer before our s- softball game always sort of thanks the Lord for the weather and the sunshine and the field and our health, and sort of says, "Thank you for making a world in which we can come together to play a game." We're thanking God above us. So, God above us is great. Unless you're wearing your hat, right? God above us is great as long as we're doing the right things. Because God above us is holy. God above us is perfect and righteous and powerful. And that makes God above us a little bit scary. A little bit dangerous. The creator of the world is great until you start to ask questions about why the world is exactly the way it is. Um, The most famous example of this is Job, who um, was a faithful man of God. He loved God. And um, as we read in Job, he's got his own book, Job is the star of Job, um, Satan thinks that Job only loves God God, because of all the nice things he has. And Satan goes to God and says, You know what? I bet if we took away all of Job's nice stuff, he wouldn't love you anymore. If Job's world was a little worse, I bet he wouldn't love you. And this is when God above us gets a little scary. Because God above us says, Go ahead. Have at Job. Take away his stuff. Make his world worse. Just don't kill him. And so Satan takes away Job's stuff, his livestock, his family, his health, everything. And Job still loves God. But Job's got these friends. And Job's friends are just like us. They say to Job, Job, what did you do? To incur this wrath? What have you done so that your life is like this? Why is God above us punishing you? And for basically 37 chapters, Job says, God above us is holy, He knows better than us, I'm just gonna love Him. For almost the whole book, but his friends sort of keep working on it and keep working. What did you do? That God above us has done this to you. And so finally, 37 chapters later, Job says to God, Hey God, what's going on? I've been as good as I know how to be and all this stuff has happened to me. What's going on? And in Job chapter 38, God answers him. And this, again, is when God above us can get a little scary. Because God above Job says... Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? God above us basically says, how dare you question me? I made everything, I made you, don't question how I'm running it. See, God above us is great until the world interferes. Right? Because God above us is also the rule maker. He's the one who said, "Here's this wonderful garden full of delicious things to eat. It's all for you, but don't eat the fruit of that one tree." I don't know if um, maybe don't all of you don't have relations with small children, but I do, and I have relation uh, relations. What am I? Am I from the fifties? I know myself well enough t- to know that the thing that I am forbidden becomes the thing that I want most desperately. That's why um, automakers, for instance, do limited editions, or the, uh, the Eddie Bauer Jeep Cherokee edition, where they only make 50 of them so that everybody thinks, oh my gosh, there's only 50, I've got to have one. When there's a 1,000 of something, nobody cares. When there's 10 of something, you want it more than you want life itself. I have in my pantry at home a chocolate bar that is more than a pound it's called a pound plus it's the only one I've ever seen in the entire world and I want it with every fiber of my being it's still there but I'm thinking about it right now God above us is great as long as we're good But when we are not good, God above us becomes something else entirely. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of being in the throne room of God above us. He says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train is this like little hem here on the edge of my robe. God above us is so enormous and holy and sort of gargantuan, That the train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah says that above him were seraphim, these giant angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices says Isaiah, the doorposts and thresholds shook And the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah reacts how we all react to God above us. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God above us is great as long as he stays away from us. When God above us becomes God before us, we are rightly terrified. Because for us, for us sinners, God above us is not ultimately good news. He spells the end of us. We say with Isaiah, "'Woe to me, I am ruined.'" I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But Isaiah's vision doesn't end there. In the very next verse he says, Then one of the seraphim, one of these giant angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. That's a hot coal, right? So hot that even an angel can't Can't get it out of the fire with his hands. Got to use the tongs. Right? A seraphim is flying towards Isaiah with a live coal. And he touches it to Isaiah's mouth. That sounds bad. But the angel says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. So... In that throne room, God above us becomes God for us. And this is His Son, Jesus Christ. When we are in the presence of God above us and say, Woe to me, I am ruined. God above us sends God for us to live and die As one of us. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were like Isaiah, woe is me, I am ruined, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those of us who can't stand the presence of God above us. Very rarely, says St. Paul, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might occasionally dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we sinners are in full flight from God above us, he sends God for us. If God above signals our death, then God for us announces our resurrection. I have a friend who said that the lawgiver sends the lawkeeper to die for us, the lawbreakers. I like that. The law. Giver sends the law keeper to die for us, the law breakers. God above us sends God for us to reconcile us to himself. That's the gospel. God above us sent God for us to make everything okay. And everything would be okay except for one little problem. We don't believe a word of it. Not a word. We are still in full flight from the terror of God above us. We are Isaiah. We are saying, woe to me, I am ruined, I've got to get away. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God for us into the world to live and die as one of us to reconcile us to himself. And yet we run. Because we don't believe a word of it. And here's why. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, when he's giving his disciples the great commission, right? He's sort of sending them out into the world to do his work. He says, go, baptize, make disciples of all the nations. Then he promises, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he leaves. He's gone. He gets called up to heaven again, and he's gone. Just after he's promised to be with them forever, he goes away. And that's how we find ourselves feeling most of the time. Like we're alone. God is in heaven above us, judging us, hurting us, scaring us. And we can't believe that God is actually for us. So what we really need What we really need is God with us. We're familiar with God above us. We feel him every day. The pressure of a holy God. We've heard the story about God for us in Jesus Christ. We've heard it, but we're not sure that it's true. What we really need is God with us. Now, St. Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians knows what human life is really like. He is familiar with the harsh realities of our life. He says, Now, we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, and he's referring to our flesh, our humanness, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Right? That's a hopeful message. He's saying, if what, we're, if what we've got now goes away, we've got an eternal home in heaven that God made. But then he says, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with that heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, this human body, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Listen to the terrible poetry of that. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. But while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We know this to be true. We are here in this place. We live here every day groaning, longing to be in our heavenly home, but not able to be there yet. It is because of the holiness of God above us that we feel oppressed in this way. We know ourselves to be sinners. We know we're unworthy. We feel it. Because of this place, because of this life, we forget the promise of God for us. Jesus said that those who believe in him will have eternal life, but that seems so far away and surely intended for people better than us. Can it it really be true? Can it be true? Paul says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing the truth of what is to come. He says, Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. A deposit is a guarantee. In a few weeks, we're going to have the Cots Golf Outing, which we do every year. And Fred Hyatt, who's running it, has already made a deposit with the golf course. So that when we show up in a few weeks, we'll be on the list. They'll say, welcome. Come in. We know about you. We're ready for you. No matter what happens between now and then, the deposit has been made. We are welcome there. No matter how much our lives fall apart, no matter how much we ruin our relationships with those around us, in a couple weeks, we'll be playing golf. That's the power of a deposit. And St. Paul says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know how sometimes you feel really close to God? And sometimes you don't. You know how sometimes you feel loved. And sometimes you don't. Or sometimes you feel like things are going okay in your life. And sometimes you don't. The gospel. The good news. That the lawgiver sent the law keeper to die for us. The law breakers. Is true. Whether you feel close to god or not whether you feel like he loves you or not whether you feel like things are okay or not it's a promise and a deposit has been paid we might say it's true because you feel far from god it's true because you don't feel like everything's okay the times when you feel close the times when you do feel loved the times when you feel okay that's The deposit, that's that whisper in your ear, I did this for you. The law giver has given the law keeper to save us, the law breakers. That's the deposit proving that there are bright heavenly stars in the otherwise nighttime sky of human life. That even though we feel and are 100% guilty in the face of God above us, we are 100% redeemed because of God for us and 100% cared for by God with us. Amen.